For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Our chant for this evening will be the Metta Sutta, and we will begin first with the repentance verse. So I'll go ahead and share my screen. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion. Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion. Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Metta Sutta. This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere, without pride, easily contented, and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise but not puffed up. And let one not desire great possessions even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Even as a mother, at the risk of her life, watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world, standing or walking, sitting or lying down, during all one's waking hours, let one practice the way with gratitude, not holding to fixed views, endowed with insight, freed from sense appetites. One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. May all, all beings extend... May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. 
With full awareness we have chanted the Metta Sutta. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Mahaprajapati, our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma, our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Ehe Dogen, our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu, the perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri, to the well-being of all those afflicted with ills, and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world, gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, mahaprajna paramita. Our talk tonight will be from Neozon Eric Shutt, who is an authorized Dharma teacher here at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate. <clears throat> Matt, thank you for joining me tonight. Alex, thank you for joining Matt and me tonight. Ed, thank you for joining Matt, Alex, and me tonight. Phyllis, thank you for joining Ed, Matt, me, Alex tonight, and Douglas, uh, thank you for joining us. Um, I hope you're able to uh, pick this up. Douglas is in a car. Um, it's an experiment. Um, tonight's talk, I would like to make two caveats. Um, as is so often the case, I have trouble sometimes marshalling my thoughts um, I actually have some. I just can't make them do what I would like sometimes. And so um, the approach I'm going to take tonight will really be kind of throwing a few balls up in the air and hoping to catch them um, uh, in some organized manner in which no one will get hurt. And uh, I'm going to count on you guys, um, you know, if you – See any that have rolled away that you want to retrieve. Um, you can, we can do that in the, uh, the, uh, discussion part. Um, if you don't want to retrieve them, they can die in peace. Um, the other, the other, uh, caveat I would like to make is, um, I'm going to be touching on some things tonight that by their nature, um, how would I put this? I don't mean to be coy or uh, anything like that, but I want, I will have to, I feel obliged to um, uh, be a little short on detail uh, in, in certain ways, names, dates, places. Um, uh, so uh, just be aware of that. And there may be things that you want to ask about, but I think you'll sense what these things are 
And uh, I'd be happy to discuss them with any of you at another time, uh, but it would not be appropriate to be super explicit about some kinds of things in this context, not knowing who may listen later. So it's always propitious that we begin with the uh, uh, chant about our ancient twisted karma. Part of what I want to talk about tonight is our ancient twisted karma, but considering it in a particular light, in uh, considering it in the light of um, what we call bodhicitta, the sometimes said the thought of enlightenment, um, the aspiration towards waking up. You you are probably familiar with this term. Um, And in fact, um, I am going to be trying to make the point uh, that there's a very close relationship um, between our ancient twisted karma and our um, taking it into our hearts to move towards awakening or to chitta. In fact, there might even be a kind of identity. And um, you know, I don't know. I don't know if this is. Um, sort of orthodox or, or doctrinal. I mean, I'm sure some people might object to this formulation, but um, but it's one that I feel. And so I'd like to explore it with you. Um, when people go to Tassahara, uh, when people go to Tassahara for their first ongo, um at some point, they will be asked to do what we call a way-seeking mind talk. Um, we've had uh, occasionally at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate people do way-seeking mind talks, um, but it's a different context and and so on. Um, and I don't know, <clears throat> don't know if this is an American tradition, something that was brought in. Um, in the last 50, 60 years, as so many other traditions have been. Metta Sutta, that didn't come out of the Zen school, but I'm glad to have it. Um, I don't know if they um, had it in Japan previously or whatever, but it, it's a very interesting thing. And as it was explained to me uh, when I did this in 2009, um, I, you know, told I was going to be doing a way-seeking mind talk before the assembly at some point. Um, and, you know, I'm asked, well, what does that mean? What am I supposed to do? And uh, the abbot at the time, Steve Stuckey, I think, told me, he said, you know, tell us how you got here. Not why you're here exactly, but how, how did you get here? What's the process? You know, what are you doing sitting in these woods, in a temple, far from things, etc. Um, and as it happened, um, I was very late in the game uh, in terms of, you know, we, these would happen throughout the ongo, and I was really towards the end. So I had a lot of time to be on my cushion um, reviewing <laughs> how did I get here, um, as David Byrne might say. And... Um, Boy, uh, it was not easy. Um, 
you know, I spent a lot of time, of course, uh, thinking about my life and how I'd come to practice, uh, you know, when I was working in the garden and those kinds of situations. And then, you know, after a certain period of time, uh, you know, in Zazen itself, I just started to have this kind of explosion of long forgotten memories um, or memories of things that I thought had been sort of emotionally sorted out decades before, years before, um, and turned out not to have been. And I had to tend to them in the moment um, in Zazen. Uh, and it was very uncomfortable because I, like so many people, um, have some very, you know, some very dark chapters and incidents um, in my life. Um, you know, really unfortunate things, things that, you know, happened to me, um, things that I did that I regret, um, uh, family dynamics. Um, it was very uncomfortable um, and very, very difficult to stand up uh, before a bunch of people whom I knew what their feet looked like very well in the backs of their heads, but most of them I hadn't really talked to. Um, and of course, you know, it's a friendly crowd, right? And part of the reason it's friendly is because um, um, it turns out when you hear other people's uh, way-seeking mind talk, um, and I heard many more when I met, many more actually, when I, like three times as many, when I uh, went back uh, later for another ongo. Um, and you, you come to realize that everybody, um, we've all, got our ancient twisted karma. Um, that made it a little easier. And it was a, you know, and it was a great, it was a great relief actually to, to enunciate some of these things. There were many things I'd never discussed with anybody or even allowed myself to think about previously. You know, I'm sure some of those things have sunk back down and bubble up again. Some of them, I think, actually just sort of like through that process, you know, bubbled away, you know, that I'm, I'm, you know, that they're now lo no longer haunting me in the same way. And I think that, too, is a common experience. But what I found through this process or what I intuited was that uh, this idea why I was at the monastery um, was not at all, in any sense of the word, independent of my ancient twisted karma. In other words, um, you know, there's this kind of trope, there's this kind of movement in very, very common in Mahayana thinking. I don't think so much in, in the other schools, but... Um, you know, the Bodhisattva path, there's this logic of um, things not being one, but not being two, not being the same, not being different. And I would say that maybe ancient twisted karma and bodhicitta um, stand in this kind of relationship. They're not the same thing exactly, but they're totally inseparable, um, as indeed uh, delusion and awakening are.
Bodhicitta traditionally, I mean, it, it, you know, I don't even know actually if, if it's appropriate to think of bodhicitta and way-seeking mind as the same thing. I can't quite think of how they would be different. When you look at the old, um, you know, the old, the, some of the Sanskrit, um, based, you know, the Indic, uh, expressions of Buddhism, when they talk about bodhicitta, um, sometimes they, they talk, they, some, Formulations say there are four four things that bring it about. The first one is witnessing the performance of a miracle by a Buddha. Okay? This might think I don't know what it is. It's like oh man, I want to be like that guy. I mean I don't know how that works, but but that's the first one. The second one is listening to the teachings, listening to teachings directed to bodhisattvas. You know so listening to teachings, presumably of Buddhas or Bodhisattvas, directed at other Bodhisattvas. That's what I imagine. And um, the third one is said to be recognizing the fact, you know, this gets into the, you know, I heard these ideas of Mapo, the end of the Dharma. Um, and some thinkers say that this can be something that will arouse bodhicitta. You realize that, you know, something of great value, uh, the, the Dharma, um, according to some ways of thinking about it, could actually disappear from the world. You know, the Buddhist teachings could be lost, and then we'd have to wait for another cycle. And then the last one is, is the realization that all human beings are afflicted by all kinds of negative experience um, and difficulties and responding to that with empathy and compassion. And this is the one that sort of makes sense to me phenomenologically. I mean, okay, you know, maybe there are people who are witnessing Buddhas. If we are, we're probably not aware of it, performing, you know, performing miracles or whatever, all these things. But I, and certainly we can, draw inspiration from hearing teachings. I mean, this is crucial. But, you know, they talk about Bodhicitta specifically as being the point where we arouse this thought or this aspiration and enter the Bodhisattva path. So the connection there with this, this that's the, so it's this one about sensing people's pain and recognizing it as something that you share. You know, that's the idea of compassion. That's where we're feeling the same things, um, and recognizing that all people share this, and from that, setting out on the path. You know, they sometimes talk about relative bodhicitta, conventional bodhicitta. People like Shakyadeva would say that's. Um, they make the analogy: well, relative bodhicitta is. Um, is analogous to thinking about setting out on a journey, thinking about deciding to take a journey, take a trip. Um, the, I don't know what you call it, the absolute or um, ultimate uh, odichita is where you actually set out on that journey. And so you can see the logic, even though probably everybody at, at um who was at Pasahara almost cert- certainly had been 
set out on that path long before, um, it kind of makes sense that when you turn up to practice together at a monastery for the first time and ask to be admitted, um, that you would do something like way seeking mind park. Um, you would give an account of how you were aroused, inspired towards practice. <clears throat> so, so there's this connection, I think, between Okichita and, as I said, our ancient twisted karma. They come together. Um, Dogen says in, you know, in Genja Koan that when you first embark upon practice, you think the Dharma is far away. And then you discover, of course, that it's not. Um, but you also discover that delusion is never far away either. Um, and, and so you set about to responding to this strange human condition situation. <clears throat> So I would like to now sort of give some examples of how really painful, difficult kinds of things have, you know, have resulted in somebody either renewing or setting out on practice um, to to kind of show show this link. And the first one that I'll just say in passing has to do with um, a person I know well, who um, some of you may know, some of you do know. Um, after a period away from practice, um, found themselves um, institutionalized, found themselves uh, in a situation in a uh, you know in a in a hospital for mental health reasons. And uh, in the context of that, design, deciding to resume a zazen practice, um, you know, apparently if you find yourself in that situation, you know, you might want to be discreet because that can apparently be taken as a sign of a little bit of um, weird behavior in its own right. And you, you might have some explaining to do, as Ricky Ricardo would say, um, Another situation, um, for many years, I, um, I don't know, six, seven, uh, I was going once a week to the Metropolitan Correctional Center downtown, um, doing a, a meditation program. Um, various people, you know, it was really, really interesting group. I, I came to really love this actually, um, I love being there, oddly enough, and being with these people, oddly enough. Um, and many of them, you know, I never asked anybody what they were there for. Um, many people would share, um, you know, and of course, you know, there were the people who said, I'm here because of a gigantic error, which may or may not have been true. You know, and then you would meet other people who would say, well, I'm here because I'm a pedophile, or I'm here because I'm a murderer, or... Um, I'm here because I sold um, uh, banned material to North Korea. Um, you know, a lot of these guys, it was, well, this is another story. A lot of these guys, there were, you know, certainly Anglo-Americans there. Um, there were African-Americans there. It's usually a small group um, shifting past characters, but the great majority of them actually were, were people from Asia. 
and um, and very often had different kind of practice, devotional practices and so on. But it was all cool. Um, but I met this one guy. You know, there must be more to the story. Um, he, there were a lot of people in there for immigration-related things, but there was always more to the story. You know, it's like, oh, I'm here, you know, because I, I came in illegally, and it would turn out, yeah, you, you did that. And also, you were, like, selling counterfeit green cards, right? Um, so that kind of thing. Um, but I met this one guy. He he was arrested within his first, Chinese guy. He was arrested within his first 24 hours of being in the States. Um, and he never contested that. Um, you know, so you would think it would be a matter of just, okay, man, here's your ticket, you know, head home. No, that, that process took three years to sort out during which time he was in the, um, you know, at the Metropolitan Correctional Center. Um, but he was a remarkable man. Um, so, so one thing, you know, so yes, he was a remarkable man, but two, I'm almost certain there was part of his story that I never heard, you know, um, because it wouldn't be a simple immigration violation to get him where he was. Um, and I, so I don't know. So, so there was something dark and probably twisted there um, that I was not aware of. But what I saw and experienced as completely genuine was um, a guy, he'd been, interestingly enough, he'd been raised at Shaolin Temple. He was an orphan and been raised at Shaolin Temple did not want to ordain, became uh, involved in installing solar panels and this kind of thing. Um, but anyway, he got, he got busted, got stuck in prison and uh, for a couple of years. And, um, you know, very quickly, really sharp guy. I mean, when I first met him, he barely spoke any English. And uh, by the time he left, uh, uh, he was, probably better than I am. Um, he, was, he was very good, very smart. But, you know, he responded to this very difficult situation of um, being where he was by asking himself, what can I do in this situation? And he, um, uh, he was, uh, I don't know if he's like had any kind of certification, but he, um, uh, had the capacity to teach people Hatha Yoga. Um, guys got a, an hour a day, I think, up on the roof for various exercises, and he would spend his hour teaching others who were there at the same time to do yoga if they were interested. And he, he also had some experience with doing, a lot of experience actually, um, with doing acupuncture. And uh, of course, that's, you can't have a gum wrapper, let alone acupuncture needles in that situation. Um, so he asked me to go to Chinatown and uh, locate a book about acupressure so that he could um, uh, have some pictures to show and point to people different things. And then he would do acupressure on people. Um, and the guys liked him, you know, and uh, um, no, it's just, it was, it was, it was just very, you know, it was just really impressive, um, you know, and he kind of like brought a certain light to the situation. Um, more recently, I heard a story about the same institution and Alex and Douglas heard a little bit about this the other night. 
Uh, it was a guy. Um, I ran into somebody on the street here in Hyde Park and had a conversation with this person. Um, I'd not seen for about three years. They used to participate in the Hyde Park group. And this person's son had once come with them to participate in the Hyde Park group. And uh, the basic situation was that this guy was in a fairly prestigious law school, home for a visit, spending time at a homeless shelter that he volunteered at, where apparently um, he was given a brownie or something like something edible um, with one expectation of what, what he was going to experience. And it had presumably been laced with something very, very different. And it triggered a psychotic response. Um, when this guy realized he was in trouble, he immediately went back to his parents' home. They both sat up with him all night. And, uh, and then in the very early morning, out of the blue, uh, this person uh, grabbed a knife and stabbed one of the parents, the other parent, um, and killed them. And uh, is now in uh, maximum security at, at Metropolitan Correction Center. And um, um, I am told, uh, you know, that that psychotic break seemed to, you know, there were no precursors that anybody was aware of. Um, there's no evidence of it now, I'm told. Uh, but there's very little expectation this person will ever be um, free. You know, I don't know why. I don't know, you know, how that works. I didn't get that kind of detail. So another person in prison. But what's interesting is, is the response was very much like this Chinese guy. This guy had been in law school. Apparently the plan is now to try to finish law school while incarcerated and, um, and contribute to helping his buddies, his, his neighbors and their, uh, with their legal stuff, which he's already doing. So again, this like really, really, really awful situation. Um, uh, you know, that somebody is like what well, receiving, I wouldn't say welcoming, but receiving and sort of saying, what can I do here? Um, not everybody has that response, I suppose. But it's just this is the kind of thing it just kind of tears your heart out, you know. Um, so where, where do I go now? Um, so um, some years ago, I had the opportunity to um, be. I have it at. The former Sangha member, um, an anthropologist, good friend, um, um, was, has spent many, spent a lot of time in, deep in the jungle in Peru. And through a range of circumstances, I joined him twice uh, for short periods, a matter of weeks each time. Um, part of his work involved uh, shamanic ceremonies, healing ceremonies. Um, basically linguistics, uh, 
linguistic anthropology he was doing. But um, so in the course of especially the second visit, we met with this fellow that uh, he'd been working with for a long time, shaman, uh, somebody that Tigan's been in communication with through Eric, his other friend. Um, and um, I guess what I want, I want to say, so like in a series of, of these ceremonies, like on the last one, uh, you know, there was this young child brought in very, very bad bad shape, brought in from an Indian family, a mother and a grandmother. And uh, I don't know what happened. Almost certainly he was going to die. There's a very widespread um, uh, disease there uh, that the Peruvian government will treat uh, uh, the indigenous people for free. It's And uh, it's apparently easily cured um, if you can go through the process, but, but, but two things happen. You know, one thing is that, um, to receive this treatment, you have to go into a, uh, a, a, a city or town, uh, where these people are routinely treated so badly that they soon want to slip back out into the woods. Um, and then the other factor there, um, is, was that, um, it's one of these things where, you get symptomatic relief as soon as you start the start the treatment um, very very quickly, and it involves this sort of awful scabbing that eventually moves down your esophagus, and so the scabbing disappears um, before you're really cured, and so then they because they're being treated badly they go back out. Anyway, this this child is in that situation, at the, and at the beginning of the ceremony, you know the light. You know, so each person involved, you know, at different times would interact with Don Fermin. And, you know, you've probably seen these things, uh, a lot of blowing of tobacco, uh, you know, sucking on parts of your body to, to pull things out that he perceived as problematic. And, um, you know, and so people go for around to this and then the lights would go out and um, you'd be just sitting in the dark for a long time. And most of the people would, would actually... Um, you know, just kind of lie there, gas in the dark. I was sitting Zazen, and uh, as it happened, as it happened, um, uh, as soon as the light went out, you know, this baby started to just wail, this wrenching wail. And, uh, I mean, it felt like, it felt like really sounded like kind of the suffering of all humanity from beginning time. And, um, and for some reason, in that context, you probably all know this Tibetan practice, Tong Len, uh, which is uh, giving and receiving, right? You, so that with the out-breath, um, you send out whatever calm, whatever stability, whatever peace you can muster within yourself and offer it. And simultaneously with that, with the in-breath, you... Um, uh, receive the pain that you're hearing or seeing. Uh, so this is, this is sort of like Bodhisattva as cosmic, uh, cosmic air purifier, right? I mean, taking the negative, trying to take the negativity out of the situation. Anyway, uh, 
this is not a practice I've ever done in any sort of formal way. But in that situation, just sort of spontaneously, that was what felt right. So I did that for a matter of hours. And then the next day, um, I conversed with Don Fermin, uh, the Argentinian disciple. And, um, you know, was there in the morning eating my fried plantains. And uh, um, this guy asked me, Wani is his name, um, well, what was your evening like? like what happened? What happened? You know, what, what was going on with you in the last 24 hours or whatever? And I told him this thing. And what was interesting is that he said, well, you know what? Don Fermin knows that practice. He calls it um, breathing in poison, breathing out flowers. You know, so it sounds like essentially, and I never got to talk to Fermin about this, um, but I mean, it sounds like the same kind of shamanic practice almost. I mean, almost identical but what I find so interesting in that is, you know, very different parts of the world, right? And there's this, apparently, you know, this impulse that people can access under certain circumstances. Um, we also have the image of the lotus in Buddhism. And again, I don't know if this is how it is typically looked at, but um, it seems to me just sort of very crudely when I look at the symbol, you know, the whole thing about the lotus, right, is that it's that it's based in the, um, you know, the muck in the bottom of the pond and comes up through the water and blossoms, right? So, again, we have this unified thing, these things that are related indissolubly, you know, you have the muck, you have the lotus, and you have something running up between them, which, um, you know, if we're going to be really nailing things down in this little thing, we could say that's the path, or we could say that's, that's the, um, something like, you know, Odichika operating in there. Because how, how do these things that are neither the same nor different, um, how, how are they connected? How are they connected? How is it possible for muck to become beautiful? How is it possible for us in our deluded lives to have moments of awakening? So the point I'm trying to make is, um, you know, our ancient twisted karma and our aspiration to to wake up, um, you know, maybe you know they're. I mean, they're, they're they're not the same thing, but they're not so different either, right? Um, and one doesn't happen with another. And so, the point is that all of us, you know, all of us have the have some muck, right? I mean, all of us have ancient twisted karma. And it's important to remember ancient twisted karma, of course, you know, uh, doctrinally or whatever. We want to, we want to, um, be free of karma. We say ultimately that's, that's what Buddhas do. They become free. But as by John's Fox story makes clear, you know, you don't want to do that. Uh, you don't want to, to think that you're free of, causes and conditions, right? Um, you don't want to ignore causes and conditions, even if you have some awakening, um, some progress or whatever you can say. 
um, that could be very, very dangerous. And part of what this means in a, in a sort of oblique way, um, is that, I mean, the point's been made many, many times. As much as we would dis, would like to sort of disown, forget, um, you know, aspects of range and twisted karma. As we go and practice, I think it becomes more and more clear that we really, really have to kind of accept and kind of embrace it. Because honestly, it's one of those, it's like the story about what's the thing that somebody comes and, you know, a village is raided, horse gets stolen, but that turns out to be a good thing, but then it turns out to be a bad thing, it turns out to be a good thing. We do not know the consequences of our action. Chogyam uh, Trungpa talks about the the manure field of Bodhi, the, the, the basic point being that um, we have to, um, it's, that's the material out of our awakening can grow, right? Um, and there's certainly a sense in which if we say the bodhicitta, you know, relies on some sort of compassion, some sort of uh, feeling of the pain of others, and knowing what that is, you know, that's predicated on having the experience of suffering, dukkha, oneself. You know, it's it's kind of predicated on, uh, bodhicitta is kind of predicated on, you know, on a what we might say a kind of negativity. Uh, I, I don't know what the better word is, but they're joined. They're joined, just like that stem of the lotus. And so, you know, so we have these stories. So, you know, I brought forward this guy, these two people in, in, in prison downtown. And, um, the point is that, you know, we're told, you know, delusion is all around us, right? I mean, it, it will proliferate endlessly. But at the very, very same time, Dharma gates are boundless. And so again, are those things different? Are they the same? I don't know. Um, they, they certainly, um, what's the point I'm trying to make? These two guys I told you about, the guy and the, the third person, um, in the, uh, mental situation, um, <clears throat> What was important about that situation was how they met it and what they did with it. And the reality is we're all deluded beings. Um, we all are constrained by our karma, good and bad. Um, you know, I, I think in some ways when you get into those really extreme situations and some, if you can receive it all right, it may even give you kind of a leg up on understanding the situation. It's much easier for people like most of us, I presume, who are living in less dramatic circumstances to, to, to sort of realize the ways in which you're constrained and deluded. And therefore it makes it maybe harder if we have some basis for doing so to, to, um, to meet it well, to meet it productively, to meet it, um, in a way that will, foster awakening for oneself and others. Um, so, I, I, you know, 
is our conclusion here? I don't know. Um, you know, we've all got this baggage. We've all got the shit we carry around. Um, but uh, there are at least some opportunities to, to be almost grateful for it because it can become, uh, you know, depending on our karma, you know, depending on causes, conditions, depending on our aspiration, depending on our vow, these things that seem so awful um, can actually, if met properly, um, serve oneself and more importantly, or as importantly, serve others. So I'm just going to leave it there. Thank you for your patience. And um, I'm happy to entertain any uh, thing you'd like to share or ask. Neozon, I want to say uh, thank you for sharing this talk. Um, forgive me if I get a little bit emotional here. Um, I, I have been um, very much struggling with my own twisted karma for the past few days. Um, so uh, I think my, my twisted karma brought me to hear this talk as well, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, and, you know, maybe I'm asking kind of an impossible question, but uh, I, I just wondered if you had any advice as to how we could meet that, how we can receive that. You know, I feel um, I try to sit with it and I feel trapped with it. You know what I mean? I don't feel um, it's there, but I don't feel like I'm receiving it. I feel trapped by it. I don't know that I have a good answer for that. Um, I think even though you feel the trappedness, you feel the distress, the distress and anxiety about it, um, that you are actually, um, whether it's, come into the realm of consciousness or not, um, Zazen is really, you know, is probably the best way uh, to at least begin to receive these things. I mean, there's the wonderful, I think of the wonderful section in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, where uh, Suzuki Roshi says, you know, he talks about... Um, uh, well, there's a bunch of things in there, but I think in one particularly, he, he talks about a parent with a sick child, just absolutely, um, you know, riven with anxiety and concern. And he says, you know, until you've sat Zazen under those sorts of circumstances, you haven't really met Zazen yet. So um, all I can say, Alex, um, is, you know, please continue to sit and be extremely patient with your karma. Um, do not turn away from it. You know, be willing to, to examine it, however painful it might be, and see, you know, what happens. And I'll, I'll say also, uh, for what it's worth, um, if I may be of uh, any service to you during this time, I'd be happy to 
meet with you sometime over Zoom or in person. You're still in the neighborhood. Yes, for the, I'm actually yeah. I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be flying home to see family tomorrow. All right. Yeah, we will we will be able to touch. Thank you, Amazon. Yeah. You know, Sam, thank you for your talk. I apologize in advance if you can hear the YouTube that my kids are watching on. That's I do this trick whenever I have to yell at them. I yell at them behind my water glass so that you don't see me <laughs> yelling at them. So if you're like, what is he holding up his water glass so long for? Um, Neosan, I'd like to thank you. You, um, you gave me some new insight on Bodhicitta that it was like sitting there forever for me, and I never realized it till tonight. But I remember, you know, I love this way-seeking mind. I've heard a few talks from Upaya students doing their way-seeking mind, so I know it goes on elsewhere in America. I don't know if it goes on in Japan either. I'm not sure. But, um, it probably does. It's a, it's a pretty cool thing. And I was just thinking, from my own experience, when I started out, I always hated this idea of enlightenment being some end goal. And I know people say it's not an end goal, but... Everything I heard with koans and everything was they got great awakening. They were enlightened. And there was this one, and it never sat well with me. <laughs> I was listening to these koans, and the same guy showed up in two different koans. I forget which master. And um, he was enlightened in one, and then he was enlightened a different way in another one. And I asked one of my old teachers, I said, what's going on there? And he said, well, he had a small awakening the first time, and then he had a big awakening <laughs> the second time. Yeah, yeah. And then if you open your eyes to this in Dogen or elsewhere, you see all these references to, you know, Buddha beyond Buddha, awakening beyond awakening. That it's not like you just get awakened and then you're done. Like you can have, you know, further and further awakenings in different levels. And when you were talking, I'm like, this works the same way with Bodhicitta, that you can arouse Bodhi mind, but that's not a one-time event, Right. No. For my life, I got introduced to Zen Buddhism, I don't know, 13, 14 years ago. My life wasn't so bad 13, 14 years ago, at least in my perspective. But then when I went through my divorce um, uh, six, seven years ago, I had another bodhicitta, like, oh, this is what I'm going to do with my free time now. And, um, but it was a different bodhicitta, you know? And um, I think that's wonderful that we can have these different things. Um, Alex, I don't mean to give you advice, so don't take this as advice. I'll just say I've had a really rough month, and I heard this somewhere, and it stuck with me that I have been really using Avalokiteshvara a lot <laughs> when the stuff hits the fan, and I don't know what to do. And it doesn't. I'm not going to say, you know, calling out Avalokiteshvara makes things better. I don't think it really does, <laughs> but that's what I do when the stuff hits the fan. So um, I appreciate. You know, yeah, I mean, we just got to do what we got to do, but it really sucks. So I empathize with you. I've been there. Uh, we've all been there. And I think, you know, especially with Bodhicitta, we come to this, whether it's church, Buddhism, Christianity, because of suffering. You know, whatever the suffering is, you know, we come because of suffering and we want a relief. We aren't released from that suffering. So. So thank you, Neosan. Any yeah. perspective you have on any of that, I would appreciate your perspective. Oh, you know, it's very, very interesting, you know, because, you know, that sort of thing of like, well, he gets completely enlightened one time and then lo and behold, down the road, another story, he becomes completely enlightened, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, as opposed to, you know, the the view that you put forward, which I think is actually more consonant with, with the Soto view, basically, that, you know, enlightenment is not a state, it's a, it's a process, and it's ongoing. 
Um, and so it's really interesting in that context to think about bochichita, you know, this is probably not orthodox or whatever, but to think about bochichita as functioning the same kind of way. You know, there's a great emphasis in Mahayana literature of um, what they call bochichita pata, the generation of the, of the um, idea of uh, aspiration to awakening or whatever. Um, so, but to an extent that um, in some places they say, you know, it's, simultane- it's simultaneously sort of valorized as this important event. But then it's also talked about is like once that event, you know, once that starts to unfold, the entirety of the path is already there. Um, you know, at least in some kind of form. Uh, and that's why it's so important. But if the entirety of the path is in the moment of bodhicitta, that means the moment of bodhicitta is also in the entirety of the path, right? And that means we're going to, at least at the level of awareness and consciousness, we're going to um, be experiencing it again and again in different different ways and being re-inspired. Re-inspired by what? Our own dukkha, our own age-twisted karma, and that of our friends and family and fellow beings. May I ask, Matt, are you you a priest? Are you becoming a priest? Or in the very beginning priest and training stages. So they make you, uh, you know how at a Tassahara you got to sit outside for three days or whatever? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it's uh like we have to act like a priest for a year i've been doing okay. that for, i've been doing that for a little more than a year but um it's only officially been six months so it's a at mzmc it's a long process which i am very grateful for you know i i really wanted to you know early on i was like i want this i want to keep it moving along and now i'm like eh. <laughs> yeah 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 that's not going to be too helpful but very beginning stages so yeah, yeah well um uh, I wish you the best 